As we discuss the challenges and thrills of recruiting at scale, we spend a lot of time getting into the granular details of hiring. However, it's equally important to take a step back and think about the big picture. My amazing guest today has been a talent acquisition leader for well-known companies like Activision and Glassdoor, and now leading the charge at a fast-scaling unicorn. In this episode, she shares her invaluable insights accumulated over many years, as well as her unique take on how to recruit at scale. How do we know if our engineering hiring is successful? How do we know if candidates are falling out of the funnel? You need to, to really get comfortable with your data and be able to show that. And you can even start at a very small level. If you have thoughts about how something's going in the recruiting process, start writing it down. Welcome back to Recruiting at Scale, a podcast where we host talent acquisition leaders from some of the fastest growing companies over the past decade. I'm your host, Tigran Sloyan. I'm the CEO of CodeSignal and the founder of the Go Beyond Resumes movement. And I can't wait to introduce you to our guest today. Julie, welcome to Recruiting at Scale. How are you? I am very good. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So before we hop in, maybe do a quick intro of who you are and what you do for our listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Julie Kukulis. I um, live and work in the Bay Area, and I've been involved in HR and recruiting roles for the last 25 years as I age myself here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually excited to to hear more about that story. So we can hop right into that portion, I guess. How did you get into it? You know, definitely 20, 25 years ago, recruiting wasn't nearly as hot of a career as it is these days. So excited to hear how hard it. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I actually um, am one of those rare people who went to school and studied HR and then got into HR. No, you did. I know. <laughs> this is the first time on this podcast. I've never <laughs> heard of anyone who has done that before. I'm telling you, it doesn't happen. People fall into recruiting in so many different ways. But I actually was going to San Francisco State that had a great HR program at the time. Mm. And we had people come from industry every week. It was sort of our thing. We did presentations every week in whatever class you were in, compensation or recruiting or, or employee relations. And we would have people come and we'd present to them. And so in our recruiting class, we actually had a great tech recruiter who came from SGI. See, I'm dating myself. <laughs> the companies that were big at the time. And he talked to us about tech recruiting. Mm -hmm. And so I was actually working while I was going to school in HR. And I decided to try recruiting. So I did a little recruiting in that role. And then I moved to an agency and started doing tech recruiting. And I just loved it. It was like a perfect fit. Nice. Nice. And uh, agencies, I guess, back then, was it operating fairly similar way? Or was it any different from what it is today? Yeah, it was pretty similar, except it's, it's really funny just what we were doing back then, because it was so early. So I at the time was doing a lot of like mechanical engineers, piping engineers, very mm -hmm. industrial type roles, getting my mm -hmm. feet wet there. And the only software engineer roles that we were working on were web developers at the time. Mm. And it was kind of funny because the sites that they were creating at the time, the ones that were popular, weren't necessarily safe for work. Right. And so right. I remember we would have to ask our clients, are you okay to review this portfolio? I'm not <laughs> going to look at it, but if you want to, and they were like, no, this is all, we know this is all the work that people do right now. 
So right. it was definitely a different time getting leads. There were not as many sites that people literally sometimes would walk in with a paper resume because their computer skills were not as good as they are today, obviously. Right. Yeah. I guess right now, if you don't have a LinkedIn, it's kind of surprising. But back then, I mean, we didn't even have it. Not even a PDF. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We had dice at the time. That's about as much as we had. Right, right. That's awesome. So I guess when you look back at the, you know, 20, 25 years, what were the, some of the more transformative moments of the career, things that heavily influenced kind of your path? Yeah, I would say there's a couple of things. One is that, so I went through the dot-com era and a couple blips of September 11, things, you know, where companies weren't necessarily doing super well during, during various either recessions or mini recessions at the time. And so I ended up being the person that people would keep like last man standing, last person standing, because I could be the HR person after everyone got laid off. Sometimes it would happen in like very short little, I called them paper cuts where you're laying off your friends right. slowly over time or very large cuts. And then they knew if they kept me that I could recruit afterwards and hire people back right. once things got back on track. And so I did that um, several times and it really taught me over time that while I appreciated what I went through and how I was able to support people, I really like the front end. Hiring is much nicer than the other side. And so I, yeah, like, I can imagine. I think I'm just going to focus on the, the happy, let me give you an offer portion. Right. So that was a big one. And then I think that same type of experience influenced me as well, because I wanted, um, I got into management pretty early in my career after, mm -hmm. you know, two or three years of recruiting. And what I learned during that was that I wanted to be safe and I wanted to make sure that my skills were always marketable. Mm -hmm. And so I, I focused more on IC work for a while mm -hmm. and decided to just really recruit. Um, I even started an agency at, at one time, kind of working out of my home, just to make sure that I was always hireable. And then eventually, over time, I decided I, I wanted to get back into management. Right, right. Any specific stories or appearances or occurrences that come to mind in terms of like things that are memorable from the journey, things you would put on the memoir, I guess, if you were one day writing that making of Julie? Yeah, no, it's it's funny. It's I think all the experience, one experience in particular that is, is probably a big one for many of the people that I'm connected to, which is I, um, my boyfriend at the time is now my husband, were, lived in the Presidio in San Francisco. And he, he wanted to show me the Yoda fountain at Lucas mm -hmm. um, because he lived right there. He's like, have you ever seen this Yoda mm -hmm. fountain? And so I was like, hey, they right. tried to recruit me before. And so I ended up the next time they called, I went and interviewed <laughs> with them and, and got a job at Lucas. And our team at Lucas was so great. We had like 25 people on our recruiting team, amazing humans, probably also the portion of our life where we just spent a lot of time together outside of work too. And then when Lucas eventually dissolved mm -hmm. um, Lucas Arts, the games portion of the company, um, we all went to different places. And mm -hmm. so we've all built our careers and are super strong and connected. I was even texting one of my friends from Lucas last night about something. And it's just, it's wonderful. I think um, when we talked just be before this in a little pre-call, we talked about how close um, we're all connected to each other, especially in the Bay Area, obviously. But those those connections and relationships yeah. are just something that I find so powerful. Right. And I guess it, it all started from a fountain there. It all started from, <laughs> from little Yoda. Yeah. <laughs> 
So I guess right now at Blend, I know you started only a few months ago. So I guess what does Blend do, just so people know uh, where you are today and what it is that they do? Yeah, yeah. Blend stands for Better Lending for All. Um, We're in the fintech space and specifically we work, so we touch consumers, but we really work with businesses. So we work with banks. Some of our big customers are like Wells Fargo. And we started with mortgages and really wanting to make sure that the infrastructure is built properly so that the transactions can move quickly and easily. But hmm. there were there was another bigger purpose that I really love about Blend, which is that Nima, our CEO, had personal experience with his parents being immigrants and buying a home in the U.S. And that really touched him, that experience. And he wanted to make sure that we're creating technology that not only makes it easier for people to go through the process, and I just use Blend myself as a customer, and it's nice. wonderful, um, but also that it, it creates something that's more inclusive so that people have more access to l- loans and all different types of loans. Um, and we do more than just mortgages today. We have a whole suite of products, but I love that we have great diversity, inclusion, and belonging programs at Blend, but also really go out into the industry to make it a more inclusive environment for everyone and mm-hmm. to, to really help, especially people with brown and black skin to be able to increase their personal wealth through home ownership. And so we're doing lots of great things on that front as well. That's a phenomenal mission. And I guess thinking about like some people are even struggling kind of adjusting to the whole work from home, even if they've been working at the company for many years, I can imagine it must have been tricky kind of joining a new company. And I know they're going through this hyper growth phase and you're leading the talent acquisition function right in the middle of COVID. So I'm I'm guessing you haven't met most of your coworkers in person. No, I haven't met any of them face-to-face except two of them that I worked with in a prior life. I worked with two people on the team at Activision. And so I do know them personally. But yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I was at Glassdoor when we first came home a year ago. Mm-hmm. And so I went through that, especially what it's like to transition to interviews remotely and, and having all of that work successfully. And then we at Blend, I say we, it wasn't me, it was the team, hired <laughs> um, like almost 300 people last year, fully wow. remotely, doubled the size of the company. And it's really, really working well for the team today. So we, again, have big hiring goals right now, all working remotely. And, and we have lots of ways that we check in with people or get people together and, and get people excited about about blend and new leaders already struggle even when it's in person kind of like you know when you come in it's you know you're the new boss everybody's trying to get to know you and uh, how have you managed kind of to do this thing remotely so that you still create that relationship that trust that managers need to have with their teams yeah absolutely i mean always you start with your listening tour, right? And go around and meet everybody and get, and start getting to know people and jumping into the, the regular team meetings that exist. I have probably for the last at least 10 years done some of my work remotely or mm-hmm. had distributed teams. So I've been used to like using chat tools and using GIFs on Slack and things like that to, to bring the fun to work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that's not abnormal for me. I also always just learn from others, things like icebreakers and meetings or, you know, a lot of get to know you time with mm-hmm. the team. So that was really helpful. 
it right. is always hard when you're coming in and kind of inheriting a team and, and then trying to care for them, especially mm -hmm. if they hadn't had a leader in a while, which happened mm -hmm. in my last two jobs. So then you really want to spend some extra time and energy with those folks. Right. Because it's very different, right, from sort of going where you're on your own versus you have a strong leader who can help you guide through the flow. So yeah, absolutely. Giving them some direction and some vision and, and that kind of stuff. So thinking about, I guess, recruiting at Bland and coming from Glassdoor, I know it's slightly different scale, right? Glassdoor is probably bigger, but growing slower than Bland, mm -hmm. smaller, growing really fast. How does recruiting differ, right? Like how do you approach it differently to make sure that it's still highly successful? It's really interesting because when I interviewed with people at Blend, the stories that they were telling me were very, very similar to what I had heard at Glassdoor. Mm. So Glassdoor was a little bit more mature as a company. We were relatively similar sized. When I joined Glassdoor, we were like six or 700 people. Mm -hmm. And I think we grew before COVID, we were about 1200. In our sales teams, we also had like regular either attrition or internal promotion. So a lot of backfills. So we were hiring about 600 a year at Glassdoor. Mm -hmm. On average, um, we were in 10 locations. So hiring into 10 locations, not right. just in the US, but in, in different countries. Here, we're more focused on the US. We're just over 600 now. Mm -hmm. um, we doubled in size last year. We'll probably, my guess is we'll probably hire closer to a thousand people this year. That's insane. Crazy I mean, big growth. Yeah. How do you even go about structuring a team that's going to accomplish this insane hiring goal? Like, do you approach it more sort of the full cycle route? Do you approach it more kind of in layers of, or in a similar vein, do you go about it from a special, everybody specializes in something or to like the generalist approach? Yeah, it's kind of a combination, I would say. So I have the groups organized by the type of recruiting that they do. Mm -hmm. So at Glassdoor, we have our home buying journey team is all the products that follow mortgage. And those hires are more transactional and high volume. Mm -hmm. So that team is separated. And then we have GNA, go to market, and then the tech groups together. And recruiters will fall into one of those areas because mm -hmm. the recruiting is very similar, right? So you, right. you want that to be more similar than not. And right. then there's some level of cross-training on each team. Because mm -hmm. ideally, if you're a hiring manager in my, in my group, then you have a trusted recruiting partner that you know knows your work and you've really worked together on many roles. So they know you. But then mm -hmm. I also like to make sure that we have others on the team who know what it is that you do and can step in and support. Historically, I've, I've had a lot of babies on my team. And so that's one of the things I always think about is like, if somebody's going out on that leave, we got to make sure that there's someone else who can step in and that manager feels just as supported with that team. So in terms of functional capabilities, that's how I structure it. I would say the capacity model is my best friend in terms of planning. Mm -hmm. And so using a capacity model to figure out what I expect a recruiter to produce, but then I like to do a look back to see what they have produced to mm -hmm. make sure that it's sort of aligned, right? right. We may be right. pushing them to produce slightly more, but right. also keeping in mind what the, what the past output has been. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you can marry that up to the hiring needs and, and figure out how you need to build the team. So kind of like working backwards, like this is how many we need to hire. This is kind of the capacity that each recruiter seems to have. And then working yeah. backwards towards headcount, I guess. 
Yeah. And that makes it really easy. It's usually in partnership with finance that I'll build a capacity model. Mm -hmm. And then it's very easy for them to say, okay, this is how many people you need. So as a result, we talked about blends, crazy growth, and we Mm -hmm. just did, um, we just redid our hiring plan for the year because Mm -hmm. we felt like where we, where we said we were going to be in October is probably not where we want to be. We want to be even bigger than that. And so we went through the, uh, the exercise organization wide and it ends up that we're basically doubling our efforts Mm -hmm. for the year, Mm -hmm. which is great. Um, but then that told me that I needed to go back to the capacity model and, and we're hiring another 10 people on our team. Right. For anyone listening, we're hiring 10 people, (laughs) all roles on our team. Also, uh, yeah, uh, there's definitely a lot of, uh, folks in recruiting who are listening. So that's a great flag. A lot of people are in talent acquisition and recruiting in particular. And if you ask many, it's not easy to be successful, right? It's a, it's a role that's, I mean, one doesn't depend just on you, right? So usually you have to work very cross-functionally from other folks on the TA side to to hiring managers, to recruiting teams, to compensation. So it's one of those very team efforts to really succeed. So I'm curious when you look back at your career, what's the secret sauce, right? Like what is the, what are the things that set you apart and put you on this journey going from doing your undergrad in HR to, to running town acquisition at very iconic companies? Yeah, I think that you really pulled out something that I think is super important, which is that it's not just about numbers. Mm-hmm. You can be a great recruiter who fills a lot of roles, mm-hmm. but then you make messes everywhere. Um, <laughs> and it's very, very important to me to find recruiters who believe in collaboration mm-hmm. and really think about the recruiting holistically, not just the piece that they're doing, but how it impacts others and how that candidate is going to flow from one step to another. Right. I think early in my career, you know, I sort of mentioned what what my roles look like, but what I always, we didn't at the time have HR at the table in the same way that we do today. Mm-hmm. We didn't have HRBPs. We had generalists and HR managers, but I feel like in the, at least in the companies that I worked for, they weren't necessarily being pulled by the business and, and brought in and sort of told what was going on. Mm -hmm. But it was always recruiters who had that, right? If I went into a hiring manager's office, their eyes would light up because Mm -hmm. they knew that I was there to support them and hire people for their team. And then they would end up telling me everything that was going on within their group as a way to get hires. And I would take those little nuggets and things that I learned that maybe my HR counterparts should know. And then I would go tell them. And I called it like building a bridge to HR through the work that I did. Um, and I think that that still applies today. We've been rebranding as talent acquisition partners for mm-hmm. the last few years mm-hmm. because we have that that same sort of partnership mentality. And that right. means being curious about the business, really understanding what it is the teams do and mm-hmm. understanding the candidate market and ecosystem as well. Right. And at the end of the day, it's all about people, I guess, on both sides, right? So on the one hand, you're you're recruiting humans and you have to really be able to uh, gain the trust and build strong relationships, listen and understand. And same, I guess, inside, right, with hiring managers and different groups, being able to create that trusting relationship. So yeah, absolutely. It, it goes, I, I think, both ways, which is nice because you can kind of keep practicing that same skill set with a slightly different hat on. Yeah, no. And I think 
anything that you can do to pull recruiters out from the just regular recruiting cycle is nice for their brains because recruiting, as we know, is very rinse and repeat. You're doing the same exercises over and over. So anytime you can meet a new team, learn a new technology, try using some other type of skill set, maybe do some training or, you know, think about sourcing in a different way. Just something to sort of pull you out of that monotony that happens sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it can get monotonous and you have to bring some variety into it. Absolutely. Amazing. Well, before we hop off here, uh, any advice to people listening, right? I'm, I'm sure many people are listening right now. Or like one day I want to be like Julie, you know, so she seems to have started somewhere that where I started and maybe a few years into my career, I want to be as great as she is. Any, any advice, tips that you would leave the listeners with? Yeah, I think I would really understand my data. I think data is so important, especially if you're looking to leadership, if you're looking to build a repeatable model, if you're looking to get credibility understanding what that cycle looks like. We talked about capacity models sort of output and and capacity and how that fits in with the business needs and helps you be more strategic in your work, but also just being able to tell the story, right? How do we know if our engineering hiring is successful? How do we know if candidates are falling out of the funnel? You need to, to really get comfortable with your data and be able to show that. And even you can even start at a very small level, which is like I've been, I was just saying to someone the other day, if you have thoughts about how something's going in the recruiting process, start writing it down. Start writing it down. That becomes data, right? And then you build onto it. But that will give you so much more credibility with your hiring teams and your and your leaders that you're supporting to be able to show them that you really understand the, the big picture, what's going on in the process, and you're willing to get in and and get into the numbers. Right. And even if you understand it instinctively, it's not enough to actually communicate and show to others that you do. Yeah. No, I think we all started out with like, I have a feeling this isn't going well, right? I have a feeling that you're not reviewing my resumes on time or whatever it is that's going on for you. But once you start showing that in the numbers, you can say like the recruiting process is slowing down here, right? This is how much time it takes to get from here to here, right? It makes it a big difference. Love it. It's a great note to end it on. Thank you so much, Julie. I really appreciate your time. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Go to recruitingatscale.com to find more episodes and make sure to subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.